Welcome to I'm So Obsessed, where we talk with actors, artists, and creators about their work, career, and current obsession. I'm your host, Patrick Holland, and today's guest is the stand-up comedian and host of the Rotten Tomatoes YouTube show, Versus. It's Mark Ellis. We talk about his career as a comic, his passion for films. We talk about the show Versus in which he pit two movies against each other to see which one's better. For example, there's a Jaws versus Jurassic Park episode, as well as one that pits The Office against Friends. We also talk about how being a stand-up on the road prepared him for sheltering in place alone. Thanks for taking time to join me this morning. Um, I got to see a bunch of your stand-up clips, which are really funny. And I'm wondering, for people who might not be familiar with you, how do you introduce yourself? <laughs> um, the way that I introduce myself, well, it's going to be different when I'm back out in the world after this. I might introduce myself without a handshake or any physical contact, but I think the way that I would say hello to someone is that I'm a comedian. Uh, it, it's kind of a good dual world that I walk in right now. I'm kind of like the blade of entertainers where I get to host and I also get to do stand-up. So it's it's the best of both worlds. Um, well, let, let's talk a little bit about kind of everything going on in the world because that is obviously everything going on in the world. So first of all, how are you and your family and your situation? How are you guys doing right now? I'm I'm really blessed, man. I'm I'm lucky. I live in Southern California. Uh, my family is, we are a very tightly knit unit, but you wouldn't know it geographically because my mom and my sister are in Virginia, which is uh, where I grew up for a little bit of my life. And then my brother and his family are in Seattle and I am in Southern California. So we do actually get to see each other quite a bit. We travel all the time. And because I don't have any children and I don't really plan on doing that to myself, I just get to be Uncle Mark and I get to go visit the niece and the two nephews. Whenever I can hop on a flight, my mom will usually meet me because my mom and I are the two single people left in our family. So um, <laughs> we have bags, we'll travel. And when this is all over, we're looking forward to uh, to getting our summer family hoot nanny back up and running. Uh, hoot nanny. I, see, I grew up in the Southeast, a little further south. I was in South Carolina and New Orleans. But uh, yeah, Virginia's a great place. Obviously, being a performer, it's kind of hard to do that from home. And you're talking about how much you travel a lot uh, as a performer. How are you handling that? And is, is there ways you can adapt that for like online and or other ways you imagine adapting your your comedy? Well, that's the great thing about, you know, our our country and humanity as a whole is that we're very adaptable when our backs are against the wall. And so now I think everybody suddenly knows how to use Zoom and Rendezvous and all these things that, that we never really knew existed before. So that's great. And the thing that I miss the most is stand up because there's just no replacement for that. You know, you, I have some friends that have done some virtual stand-up shows and, and I've done a little bit in that realm, but it's just, there's nothing that is going to replace being in front of a live crowd. You're on stage alone. There's a brick wall behind you. And it's just the simple pleasure of getting to communicate directly to people. And that's the thing that I miss, you know, um, getting to hang out with my friends and all that stuff is, is there. But I think that the virtual world that we live in has assaged a lot of that you know it's it's if we had to go through this thing i'm glad that we have all the modern technology that we do absolutely and then obviously the the natural follow-up would be like it i think i saw someplace like it's a like a theater in germany and they've taken out like every third seat and like every other row of the theater i wonder like what do you think that stand-up is going to look like or adapt 
after all this or even in the coming months, if not years? It's a great question because I think initially when we all were, okay, we're going to quarantine and maybe it'll be a couple of weeks and then we'll all be okay. I think a lot of comics were just thinking about how great it's going to feel to be back at the comedy store on stage like the old days. And I do believe that we're going to get back to that place, but I think it's going to be more gradual than we initially expected. There's already some comedy clubs that are open that I have friends that are even performing at clubs across the country this weekend that are doing the social distance thing. So the way it's set up is if we all came as a group, then we could sit at a table together. But then the next table of people would be at least six feet away. And most of the clubs that I've seen or communicated with are still requiring you to wear your face masks if you're not, you know, sipping a beverage and all the wait staff has gloves and face masks and all that stuff. So I'm not sure how a group of people laughing through face masks is going <laughs> to affect the performance, but it's this slow return to normalcy. So it's nice to at least take those, those what about Bob baby steps, if you will. No, that's good. And I, it, I think there's a, a great memoir Steve Martin wrote, and he talked about when he was performing stand-up that he always found that the, the best audiences were the ones that were the most uncomfortable. So I'm wondering if there's maybe even something like that. Everyone's wearing a face mask. It's not the most comfortable way to watch a show that maybe that actually might do something different to the quality of the performance, too. I love that you brought that up because the, the book is Born Standing Up, and it's one of the best Born books. Standing Up, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Steve Martin is just such a genius from a performer, but also from an analytical standpoint, from really looking at how the the laughter communicates from the audience to the comic and how the comic surfs with that. And when he's talking about an audience being uncomfortable, it's actually the exact opposite of what Dr. Anthony Fauci is trying to teach all of us, which is if making an audience uncomfortable is more so packing a bunch of people into a very small space and making it a little cooler than they might be used to. And if they're, if they're there, then that creates tension. And the tension, when that gets unleashed in the form of a laugh, it's this big, booming guffaw that makes it a great comedy show. And so if you have an audience that's much more spread out, I think that that might be anti what Steve Martin's philosophy but <laughs> hey this is the world that we're in right now and so yeah maybe the laughs aren't reverberating off the walls the way that they used to but comics are very good at adjusting but the other thing i'll tell you patrick is that any comic i don't care how big you are now it could be dave Chappelle or bill burr whoever we all started out playing rooms that were not full we all did the reps thousands and thousands of shows to half full rooms if we were lucky to have half capacity there so we're not foreign to the concept of performing for what seems like an empty room. We can do that. Let me ask you this too: like growing up and moving around so much, how do you do? You think that has had effect on the kind of comedy, uh, the material you talk about, or your approach to comedy? I think so. I, I think it, it's it's affected my approach to life. And anytime stand up is reflective of your life, I think that's the purest form of it. You know, I mean, comedy at its root is about being honest about who you are, about your relationship to the world, how you feel about things and society. And so the more honest you are, the more authentic you're going to come across on stage. Audiences are very good at sniffing out someone who's a phony or getting to sense someone who's not being genuine. They, they can sense desperation on stage. And so if you're true to who you are, then that's going to make the best version of you as a comic. So 
growing up, what I dealt with a lot was having to pack up and move. And my birthday's in the summer. So we were usually moving like literally on the day of my birth because you don't want to pick up and move during the school year. So I think that the, the need for any kid to make friends and to have a group, to have a community around them really made me more outgoing than I was probably comfortable being because in, you know, really in my day-to-day life, I'm a pretty shy guy, but I just have that ability to turn it on when I need to. And I think that that comes from moving around and being uprooted so many times and having to meet a new group of friends. And does that also play into the myth of like a comic having like a stand-up personality versus kind of their own personality? I, I think that what stand-ups deal with is that you have your your stage kind of rhythm and your stage energy, and then you have your offstage energy. So it's less about changing persona, and it's more just about conserving your energy for when the performance is. Like when we go on the road, I think that the thing that comics do a lot is nap, you know, because we're we might hit the hotel gym or we might go out and meet some friends in the area for lunch. But I think that most comics would prefer just that silence, that quiet in the hours leading up to the show, because it's still you on stage, but you want to give it your all and you want to make sure that you're there for the crowd that paid money to see you. So conserving that energy and making sure that you have enough calories left to burn on stage is important. And it's something that you just you learn gradually. And it's so refreshing, to be honest with you, Patrick, because I think every comic starts out feeling like you have to be on all the time. And so not just when you're on stage, when you're at the comedy club, you got to make everybody laugh all the time. And then you realize, oh, wait a minute, I don't have to be the class clown. I don't have to be the guy with the lampshade on my head at the party because I've kind of graduated past that. Now I get to be funny when I want to be funny. And the rest of the time, I don't have to worry about it. I wonder too, like, you've, how long have you been doing stand-up for? So I've been in about 16 years now. Wow. Yeah, you know, you know, it's been a long time when you can't remember the exact years. Yeah. Or you but don't want it, to, maybe. <laughs> and and it, 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 it's, it's everything about, about the life, man. And, and you're right. It, it did start from all those family road trips. Like, like back then, our big night out was going to Denny's on Friday night. And lo and behold, usually after my sets on the road somewhere, if I'm done on Friday, I'm looking for a Denny's. i'm wondering too like if you are able to well if you're able to go back in time let's not get hung up on this part but if you're able to like to give advice to yourself when you were starting out what would it be Ooh man um first of all okay kid easy with the hawaiian shirts all right you don't have to (laughs) (laughs) you don't have to be a uh a a bad mtv vj from the 1980s to to get laughs all right you don't have to look like a cruise ship director in order to get chuckles from a crowd. I think that that's the thing that I would lead with. And then, uh, you know, I, I'd probably tell myself to slow down. I think that was my biggest, uh, hang up when I was starting out is that, you know, I grew up watching comics like Robin Williams and, and, and Jim Carrey and, and Eddie Murphy, who could really seem like it, it's, it's all spontaneous, but it's so quick. And, you have to realize that the way that you're speaking may be 10 times faster than what the audience can keep up with. So I think a lot of young comics struggle with the pacing and you have to find that rhythm. And the best way to do that is to actually record your sets and listen to yourself. And if you have the ability to watch yourself on video, because you're going to learn really, really quick that you're probably going a little too fast for the audience. So the stuff you're saying, it's funny, just relax.
Um, okay, so the name of this podcast is I'm So Obsessed. And I'm wondering, Mark, what are you so obsessed with right now? <laughs> uh, well, Patrick, I like to balance my obsessions because it makes me feel like a less obsessive person if there's multiple things that I'm obsessing about. <laughs> so um, what I've been doing in this weird state of the world that we're in is I've actually been catching up more so on TV shows than movies because I have a pretty good base of knowledge for films and usually there's a lot of great television that falls through the cracks because I'm a huge sports fan and so if I'm given the option on any given day to watch a live sport and that could be a college basketball game you know in the Pac-10 um, or it could be the, uh, an NFL game it doesn't really matter to me I love competition so if that is off the table now I get to kind of sink my teeth into these shows that everybody else has been talking about that I've been late to the game with. So right now I am for the first time binging the Sopranos. I've never seen it before and I'm about halfway through season three. So I'm almost like right at the halfway point. Oh, and wow. I am just, and all my friends are telling me that they're jealous because I'm experiencing all this stuff for the first time. So it's been, it's been a lot of fun. Oh man. Yeah. That's a good place to be, dude. <laughs> During the shelter in place, we've kind of—I feel like we've had kind of three pop culture big things. We had like the tiger thing at the beginning, then there was like Animal Crossing on the Nintendo Switch, and I would say this last one—I think for sports fans is there—is the Last Dance. Did you uh, did you get to watch this uh, Michael Jordan documentary? What do you think? Oh, I mean, you talk about obsessed, man. That that documentary, and I I do call it binging, even though we only got two episodes every Sunday. I went back and I watched those so many times. There's so much to study. And to watch and to relive in there because that was when I was growing up and I played basketball through high school and uh, and, you know, did all the intramural sports in college. And it, it's funny as one of my greatest achievements as a comedian is uh, leading the comedy store rec league basketball team to four championships that you can go <laughs> see our rec league trophies are proudly displayed in the front bar of the comedy store. So um, it's it, it's been great to to go back in time in a way and look at, you know, everything that I already knew for the most part about Michael Jordan and about the Chicago Bulls, but getting to have that conversation now in 2020 on social media and with my friends is just been so, so cool for me because again, I'm, I consider myself a pretty big sports fan. So there was stuff in there that I was not familiar with that I was learning for the first time, but a lot of it is like, Oh, I remember that. And Oh, I forgot that. And it's just been great. And I think that a lot of people who are, you know, getting this version of Michael Jordan for the very first time are kind of realizing, oh, this is why everybody who's probably 35 and above is hailing this guy as the greatest basketball player of all time. It wasn't just what he did on the court. It was his mentality. It was his passion that he brought to really anything that you can compete in. He wanted to win. I'm also wondering, too, like uh – Comedy and sports do kind of go hand in hand a bit. Um, how does that play into your world and the way you approach like the topic of sports as a comedian? It's an awesome question you just asked because there there is an overlay. Um, there is a competition angle to stand up, not necessarily with comics competing amongst themselves. I mean, of course, there's going to be a little bit of that because there's only so many slots for you know Amazon or Netflix to give someone a special or to get you know, on late night TV or Comedy Central. But I think more so than that, it, it's like golf and that we're competing against ourselves. Every time we go on stage, it's like you're going out on the golf course. And even if you've played that golf course a thousand times, it's always going to be different. The winds changed, 
there's a new sand trap, you're, you're not playing as well, your swing feels off, and you have to adapt and have the best round possible. And with stand-up, when you're on stage, there's, there's no timeouts. You know, there, there's no, okay, you guys didn't like that one. Let me take five minutes and let me, <laughs> let me retool and get back with you. You know, one, one of the things that I always love comparing stand-up to is once you get off stage, it's like after a round in a boxing match because now you're sitting in the corner and kind of process what just happened and, and you, your trainer's talking. You're probably not giving you water. You're probably having some sort of alcoholic beverage, but you're thinking, oh, man, okay, now I'm ready, and I want to get back in front of that crowd and show them this joke or show them that joke. And it's, uh, it's always going to feel like a sport to me because th that's the mentality that I approach it with. But I think even people that didn't grow up playing sports that became comics – have that in them. It may not be as, as realized or as apparent because they didn't care about the 90s Bulls or the New England Patriots dynasty or the Spurs or whoever it is, but I think that it's in there somewhere. There, there is a definite desire to win, to improve, to work on your game, and you know to bring back the moniker of the podcast, it is something that we are obsessed with. We're always thinking about how we can add a new bit to our set, how we can retool how we can get better as a comic it's a never-ending search for perfection okay so i gotta ask about rotten tomatoes so how did you get hooked up with rotten tomatoes so i me and my buddy christian harloff in 2008 2007 we started a movie review youtube channel called schmoes no and <laughs> back in the day, YouTube back then it, it was it was like the Wild West. It, it was like you you just rolled into Tombstone, and it was just this brand new thing that was not yet colonized. And so we were one of the first movie reviewers that were just doing these video reviews on YouTube. And we always approached it from the angle of we we liked what Siskel and Ebert did. We don't want to be necessarily known as movie critics, but we love that back and forth that. You know, sometimes animosity, sometimes congeniality between the two. I think Christian and I, because he, he used to do stand-up as well. That's how we met. And so we brought a desire to entertain to the reviews as well. And then as we progressed in our career with Schmoes, we started to get more notoriety and a lot of subscribers and had some nice breaks on the way. And one of those was getting to meet some people at Fandango and at Rotten Tomatoes. And then a couple of years ago, Rotten Tomatoes reached out about me hosting um, a show at Comic-Con, I think, in San Diego. And I have had a great relationship with them ever since. And it's just been more solidified because now we get to meet and chat on a regular basis. And I have a couple projects that are ongoing with them that luckily we've been able to maintain through this pandemic. And so it's been a long relationship, but really in the last couple of years, it's, it's picked up steam. And it's just, it's in such a good place right now. And they really let me be me, but also get to represent the brand. And it's, it's, it really is something that I'm, I'm very thankful for. And that fits in pretty well with all the stand-up you're doing too, right? You know what? It does because, you know, sometimes we'll do live shows with Rotten Tomatoes. We'll do a show called Your Opinion Sucks, which is the crowd <laughs> gets to go up against, you know, three of the most esteemed movie critics that are on stage and they get to have a back and forth about their opinions on a controversial movie and I get to host it. And so I get to come on stage and obviously having a stand-up background helps with that. And then my, my movie brain gets to kick in. If somebody's arguing the merits of, Oh, I thought cats was great. And a critic saying, no, cats is the worst movie of the year. <laughs> <laughs> so I get to kind of referee that. And it's, it, it's a lot of fun to be in front of a live crowd and sure to get a couple laughs here and there, but also just to get to watch, 
the passion that people have for movies. I mean, people love watching them, but they also love talking about them. And in this age of, of social media and everybody trying to, to keep track of what everyone else's opinion is, that's why Rotten Tomatoes is kind of a nice, safe place for us all to, to get this energy out that we have wanting to talk about movies and TV shows. Especially Cats. <laughs> especially the more controversial the better man i mean i'm a huge star wars fan and so even seeing that and going through some of the stuff online on twitter it's a little tough to talk about star wars sometimes but but rotten tomatoes has always been a nice safe haven for me to get to express my love of star wars i'm wondering what have you learned what are good traits you've learned from movie reviewers with your relationship from rotten tomatoes Oh, you pick up so much stuff interacting with uh, with everyone. And, and it really is. It feels like a little bit of a high school because we would start getting invited to press screenings uh, of movies before they come out. And you see all the same people there and you realize that, oh, the movie critics, you know, you might have in your head a, a vision of what a movie critic is, but they are all different shapes and sizes and diverse backgrounds. And it's like, oh, these are just people and they just love movies more more so than anything else. And and when I sat back and thought about it, I was like, well, why was I fighting being a movie critic for so long when being a comic, you're being critical of everything. You're basically a critic <laughs> on stage. You know, that's that's the point. If a comic gets on stage and is not critical, you're probably not funny. <laughs> so, <laughs> with, with, with movie reviewers, I think one of the best notes that I ever got, and it actually came up, I think when when I was when I was on the panel for a Your Opinion Sucks back in the early days. Alonzo Duralde, who's, who's a great movie critic out in L.A., he and I were having a debate about the movie WALL-E, the Pixar film. And I was coming at it from the angle, trying to be somewhat comedic, but I said that I just couldn't get behind this movie WALL-E because it was so slow and an animated movie. It, I, I want to laugh. You know, I want to see something quick and fun like The Incredibles or Toy Story. And he countered with such a great jab saying that animation is not a genre that you can have <laughs> serious things happen in an animated movie and animation doesn't necessarily have to be funny i mean go dragon ball z has some nice comedic moments but people take that seriously there's there's so many different worlds of anime and and animation that are not just catering to me wanting to watch wiley e. coyote versus roadrunner and so it just opened my eyes to kind of new ways to look at these films that I had categorized in this very narrow box. And I think that that exchange of ideas has been so healthy and I've learned so much from my movie critic pals, which is something I never thought I would say 10 or 15 years ago. <laughs> yeah, it sounds amazing. I'm wondering too, like, is there some shows and movies you'd recommend for people to watch? And maybe they're not maybe mainstream ones or maybe they're a little offbeat. My current spectrum of shows is obviously I'm, I'm binging the Sopranos. Uh, I'm, I'm going back and I'm watching a little bit of friends, which I did watch when it was on because I'm in a friend's trivia competition coming up. So <laughs> get a little prep for that. But I, I also like to get outside of what my comfort zone is, which is pretty much family guy and live sports. So I have really taken to the HBO show insecure I think Issa Rae is a genius Ooh, yeah. and I love watching that because it's a side of life that I haven't really seen represented before on HBO in that format. Um, and then I'll pivot back to something like what we do in the shadows on FX, which has been a treat to watch this season. So I try to keep it, you know, I, I like a wide smattering. I, I kind of like the, the virtual Vegas buffet, if you will, of what streaming platforms can offer us. 
Okay, so uh, I want to round up our interview here. I do a thing called pick one, and I just give you two choices, and you pick one of them. Uh, it doesn't have to necessarily be one is better than the other, or would you prefer one? It can be that. Uh, you can also talk it out. I love this game, Patrick. We could do this all day, my man. We'll start off with some just some easy ones. I think some easy ones. Siskel or Ebert? I just have such a, a soft spot for Roger Ebert. I, I think I got to go. Siskel was really good at having some barbs and back and forth with him, but Roger Ebert is just kind of the guy that we could all root for. So I'm going to go Ebert. Um, all right, next one. iPhone or Android? iPhone. All day long, which is weird because when I boot my TV up, I, I just got this beautiful new uh, Sony television that I think is more compatible with Android for whatever reason. Or anyway, when it when it comes on, it says Android. Um, but I'm I'm an iPhone guy for life. I just I'm I'm 39 years old, Patrick, and I think that this old dog is going to stick with the iPhone until Blackberries make a comeback. <laughs> really? And were you a Blackberry owner before the iPhone? I was, and it took me forever to get on board with the iPhone. I was, I was sitting in my apartment, and and I was working my BlackBerry, and virtually everybody else in the world had gone to iPhone, and there was a Sprint store right across the street, which will show you the the nice area I was living in. And my my buddy's like, dude, let's just walk to the Sprint store. We got an hour to kill. Let's get you an iPhone, and we did, and it's been love ever since. All right, next one: star ratings, number ratings, or thumbs up, thumbs down ratings. Ooh, um, the thumbs up is just so simple and palatable, but I kind of like numbers more. I, I think numbers give us a little more to chew on as far as specifically if a movie's good, how much are people responding to it? Or if a movie's bad, just how bad is it? How rotten is this movie? So I'm going to go <laughs> number ratings. When you see like a number rating, are you something where like maybe it's for a movie uh, you might be interested in seeing? Is it? You see the number rating, is it something where like, yeah, I'm going to click the review and read it now? Or is it just like, I got the, the top line and I'm going to move on? I like to see the review. I, I like, If nothing else, I like to get the broad strokes. And there's a there's a pool of, of critics that I really have always relied on. Even going back before I was in the industry, I'd read USA Today's uh, Claudia Pugh is, is one of my favorite movie reviewers. I just always, even if I didn't agree with her all the time, it was, she just had such great insight into it. So... And I think that they did the star system. But see, in my nerd statistic head, I can easily translate the star system into the number system. So I'm kind of cheating this question. <laughs> okay, next one. This is, this is a hard one, I think. Robin Williams or Eddie Murphy? Oh, man. You are really, really – you're good at this. You clearly have played this game before. <laughs> Once or twice. Um, if I had to choose one, I think the one that had the biggest impact on me is going to be the tiebreaker because they're both absolute legends and and really showed the world that you can be the funniest human on earth, but you can also be dramatic and you can be great in roles that require you to bring real emotion and leave your comedy chops at the door. I'm going to say Eddie Murphy in the slightest of possible margins because Eddie Murphy had a little bit bigger impact on me and Robin Williams, for all his greatness, I think that Eddie Murphy has the thing that nobody else can ever say is that Eddie Murphy single-handedly saved Saturday Night Live. I mean, he you talk about Michael Jordan being being a great player. He still needed Scottie Pippen to win championships. Eddie Murphy put that show on his back for three or four seasons when they had really nothing else. There were other talented performers there, but you tuned in every night to watch Eddie Murphy or else that show was going off the air. <laughs> what do you think about he's got they're doing a sequel to coming to america is that something you're excited about 
I'm rooting for it, man. I love coming to America. The director, Craig Brewer, did a great job working with Eddie Murphy in My Name is Dolomite, which was one of my favorite movies last year. And it really, oh, that was, yeah, that was so good. It that was, was such so a return good. to form for Eddie, wasn't it? It was so much fun to see that Eddie Murphy back. It was. And uh, like Wesley Snipes is in there. You're like, what is going on? I, I love this movie. Yeah. And he's so good. Snipes is so good. Everybody, it was such a well-casted movie. So I have a lot of confidence in that team to bring us something back from the 80s that, that we could appreciate. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I'm, I'm, I want it. Obviously, when you hear remakes or sequels, sometimes you roll your eyes. You're like, I want this one to work out, though. I really do. And just think about, like, if nothing else, then coming to America 2, at least we know we're going to get a couple hilarious barbershop scenes. That's all I need out of that movie. We talked about this a little earlier, but what do you think? Michael Jordan or the rest of the 1990s Chicago Bulls? <laughs> oh, man. Uh, Pippen was was great, and I think a little bit of an unsung hero. Um, Dennis Rodman was obviously Dennis, but for all the off-court stuff, I mean, you talk about a guy that brought it every night to a new level as far as rebounding basketball and studying how to rebound. Um, I, I love Steve Kerr because he helped out my San Antonio Spurs win a couple championships later in his career. But it, M, MJ is the GOAT. And if Magic and Larry saved the NBA around the same time Eddie was saving Saturday Night Live, I think Michael Jordan is the reason why the NBA has become the global brand, the, the beacon of light in the world of sports internationally that it has become. You don't have any of that stuff without Michael Jordan. So I'm going, Mike. Well, let me ask you about goat because I see on your Twitter uh, profile you list yourself as a Tetris goat. <laughs> Absolutely, man! I love playing Tetris, and that's Game Boy Tetris. That's not Nintendo Switch. That's not uh, the Tetris on your phone that you downloaded on an app. In the Game Boy realm, I don't think anybody can touch me in the world of Tetris. And are we talking like old school green hurt your eyes Game Boy or the color Game Boy? I, what I prefer is I have a Game Boy, I think it's a Game Boy Advance SP that I guess I found in a dumpster somewhere and uh, still a working original Tetris cartridge. And I will run that thing into the ground, man. It's, uh, it's, it's just, it's a great, you know, kind of time waster, I think is too crude of a term because it does just give me mentally a break from everything else going on. So if I can plug into a good game of Tetris and I've had some I've had some duds recently, but I can get back to to peak form uh, given the situation in the world. <laughs> and I think the last question I have is this is a uh, I don't want to say a tough one, but just a curious one. So um, you host a show, or you've hosted uh, you're hosting you've hosted a couple of shows. So stand up or show host. <laughs> so. Here's the way that I'll put that to you is one time I was uh, I, I did a run of shows in New York at uh, New York Comedy Club. And after the shows, I, I like to like come back on stage and do just a quick Q&A with the audience. Um, and a fan asked me a question. He asked me pretty much that question. He said, you know, I think that he probably knew me from my show Versus on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, maybe he knew me from stand up. And so he said, well, if I only give you one option, and it was pretty much what you just presented to me, be a comic or be a host. Um, the, and by the way, when he asked it, the whole crowd was like, ooh, like they're like, oh, this is the toughest <laughs> thing to, to make the decision about. And I, I put it to him like this. I'm like, look, um, one day we could all wake up this is before the pandemic. And I was like, one day we could all wake up and all this modern technology could just be, boom, gone. It, it could just be done. And we could be living in the book of Eli. 
And in that case, in that scenario, we're eventually going to be a community in groups and we're going to be having a fire and somebody's got to stand up and tell a story and I would like to offer my services. So I think that I would take stand up over anything else, but man, is that I would be missing a lot. And if this pandemic has taught me anything, it's that not even my, my safety net of stand up comedy is foolproof. And so it's been very weird there that I can't do the thing that I always thought would be there for me. And what I can do is these other things that I've added onto my career that was based on standup. So it's, it's been a <laughs> kind of a, a, a weird inverse of my career this last couple months, but it's also taught me that I've, I, I have a lot of things that um, I'm very lucky to have. I'm very fortunate to have. So Anybody considering a career in entertainment, what I would tell you is always create options for yourself. Never just get so locked into one thing that you can't pivot and do something else. I want to thank Mark for chatting with me, and I want to thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this interview, take a moment and subscribe to I'm So Obsessed on your favorite podcast app. And until next week, take care.